Green Future Growers, welcome to Season 3. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes for free or follow on your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden Podcast. It is Friday, February 26, 2021. And I have an awesome guest on the line. Who is going to talk to us about regenerative agriculture and some of the amazing things she has going on. So without further delay, from New Jersey, here's Jennifer Maynard. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Well, go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself. All right. Um, I grew up on a homestead in Alaska. Um, we grew a lot of our own food and kind of lived off the land, for the land, with the land. Um, as I got a bit older, we moved to Southern California and I was exposed to a completely different lifestyle. Um, but I've always had a home garden and for most of my life tried to grow my own food and live a fairly healthy lifestyle with that as a, as a foundation. I did uh, move into actually, which surprises a lot of people when they hear this, I moved into pharmaceuticals and biotech. I lost my uncle to HIV AIDS uh, when I was younger and I was involved in his caretaking. And I just felt like um, the medical industry was not far enough along as they should be for, for diseases like that or illnesses like that. And he suffered immensely and there just was no standard of care. So I wanted to get involved in that. I worked in specialty medicines for almost 20 years. But for me, I didn't feel like as an industry, we were doing enough with chronic illness. And I have a big belief myself because of how I was raised, that food is medicine and that food should really be one of our first lines of defense. And we put almost no emphasis in the U.S. in that space. So I really wanted to take my knowledge of business and experience with medicine um, and really focus on food and nutrition. And that's what I did um, the last few years. I started with a regenerative farm because I believe true nutrition comes from even the soil and how you grow the food. And then um, we launched a meal kitting company, Nutrition for Longevity, which is focusing on bringing all of that healthy, fresh produce into the right kind of macro ratios that it's optimal nutrition. And uh, so I still um, really want to help people with, with uh, medicine, and, and, but I think nutrition for me is the key part of that. And, and the way, again, you grow the produce and the way um, you kind of bring that together with minimal processing, I think that's really key. So I've, I have had a very interesting career path, um, but as I mentioned, for me personally, my health have, has always heavily revolved around growing a lot of my own food. And that's where a lot of my passion has always been. And I've kind of full circle looped back to that. So yeah, that's where I'm at now. Well, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. When I saw your LinkedIn profile, I was like, wait a minute, this woman worked at Bayer for 20 years or whatever. <laughs> I was like, who, how did she get on my show? And I almost canceled. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, yeah. What? it definitely surprises a lot of people. <laughs> um, yeah, I worked in hematology and oncology and, uh, you know, companies make decisions, make changes. And, you know, there were some changes made that, just but you're around. actually that's awesome because you have this great background and um it's funny because you know I got to podcasting um back in 2013 because I was taking this leadership class and we had to listen to this podcaster and I got hooked on business podcasts which like when I went to college I was like no way I'm not even going into that corporate business but like I just thought <laughs> business was so evil and then and then I just got hooked. And for like four years, I listened to nothing but business podcasts. And then, yeah. but I am starting to want to go back into the nonprofit field and more movie. I don't know. I, I mean, I love Anastasia Cole-Pocase. I don't know if you've heard of them. You're in New Jersey. So mm -hmm. she was like one of the heads of the Brooklyn Grange and the Farm mm -hmm. on the Roof. And they have, you know, their four pillars of... Um, you know, people, profitability, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I do think that's important. I think we need green jobs and we need jobs that pay sustainably. So yeah. business does, you know, I'm learning more about business has a role. 
uh i just have to go back really quick like where in alaska did you grow up like southern alaska northern alaska um, How, the, like what up yeah, on the kenai peninsula so um in homer alaska it was tiny when i lived there it's much larger now um but yeah homer alaska i have a friend who's a clinket who grew up in wrangell you know much okay. southern mm -hmm on the islands and uh, my stepkids actually live there with their mom for several years but i have never been to alaska i've been to all but two for of the lower 48 and then alaska and hawaii i have not been to louisiana or alabama okay. or alaska hawaii but I've been everywhere else i actually grew up um among island so i'm curious where in new jersey you're at i lived in dover and worked in new brunswick for a while okay. one of our big listeners eileen Catrone, our golden listener of the year for 2020s in new jersey yes. uh, we're in long like valley so we're not that far from dover actually so i don't know if you're familiar with mount olive long, uh, long valley i am not is that a little bit it's west close. of dover or Easter, um, closer to the it, city. I, oh, no, I probably drove through there. It's a little farther from the city, um, but it's Western. really it's actually not very far from Dover. So yeah, we're we're kind of I guess north central New Jersey. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of always start. Tell us about your home. Like I'm always curious. Like my question goes you know, what's your first garden memory? Who were you with? What'd you grow? I guess if you grew up in a homestead, it's probably with your parents. So, yeah, I mean, we we did a garden with our, um, I would say it's a small farm because it was a decent sized plot um, with our neighbors and our neighbors were really far away. So it was, it was kind of a big, big thing to come together, but it was a very social thing where um, we would come together with friends and we would we would garden. And I think my biggest memory is in Alaska because, you know, in the winters you have a lot less sunlight and then in spring and summer you have a lot more sunlight. So your crops are like abnormally large there. So I just remember the cabbage heads being huge and a lot of the crops just being really big. Um, and I just loved it. It's I, It really grounded me as a person with nature. I've always been very grounded, even though, you know, people are like, how did you ever work in pharma? Um, but I'm, you know, I really believe in in holistic medicine. And my my belief is that we should do the best possible thing for a, a person, not these individual. We love in the U.S. to to pick like a little sliver and just focus on that. And we got to start looking at the whole, the whole being. Um, but I've always had that really connected part of nature and I loved having my hands in the dirt and just connecting with it. And then I have this passion for understanding science and what I love what I do now with the soil microbiome and understanding actually how the soil works at a scientific level because my mind just kind of works that way. I, I love to understand how things work. And um, so I can use a lot of my science background to really apply that to the soil microbiome. And I find it extremely fascinating. And then linking it to human health with the gut microbiome and the human microbiome, they're so interconnected and we love to separate them. Um, you know, and it's funny, I've been, I've taken herbal medicine classes so I could grow my own herbs and make my own herbal medicine. And it's funny when you go to something like that, at the time I was working for a pharma company, <laughs> A lot of people are like, why are you here? You work for the devil. And I was like, look, I personally believe until we can really bring all this together and, and work on true holistic medicine, because there are, you know, I worked in hemophilia. I started my career in hemophilia. And there are certain diseases where- Wait, what, is that like the study of blood? Is that what so that hemophilia, means? So yes. Um, so well, hemophiliacs cannot produce, um, hemophilia A, they can't produce a clotting factor, a, a protein called factor eight and no herb can provide that no nutrition regimen it's it's literally their genes their genetics um they're missing that to be able to produce that factory protein so it used to come out of fractionated blood plasma now it's done through recombinant technology and it's basically a, they have to infuse with this on a regular basis to not internally bleed and so certain things like that HIV AIDS, as an example, watching someone suffer and, and, and eventually lose their battle to it. There's just certain things that I do believe modern medicine is really important for. I just think we abuse it and we do too much with it. And so 
that's where I'm just a big believer. We got to start pulling all this together where we're helping a human body. We're helping a human person. That's a whole system, a really complex system. And that we can understand as much as possible on every aspect of it. Um, Cause that's how I live my life. If, if I had a, a serious illness, I would look at all of the modern science that's available, <clears throat> but I definitely would do everything I could do with nutrition and herbal medicine and meditation and everything I could do to support my body in the more natural ways. And it's interesting because, you know, over thousands of years ago, the, what we call the, the founder of modern medicine, Hippocrates, he's the one that coined the phrase, let food be their medicine and medicine be their food. And so it's just interesting that thousands of years ago, they understood it. They understood that that was part of medicine and that it was the starting point of it. And we've completely lost that. So I just find that fascinating. And I think until we can bring that back to the forefront and gardening and farming is the start of it. I absolutely believe without a doubt that if we solve those problems, because obviously we're doing a lot of damage with a lot of our modern agriculture. And I do believe it's absolutely affecting our human health. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I've spun around <laughs> in my, uh, my areas that I put my focus. Awesome. Well, we need people like you who can speak truth to this and scientists. Like, I totally want to get this hashtag science for safety to become like, I don't know, just like where people are really back to believing in science. And I'm surrounded by faith over fear signs all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's just... I'm um. I just think people like you, I love your passion for science. Like I have so many questions. I want to be like, how did you do this? And how do we get kids to do that? Understand this? And like, cause I'm an elementary teacher by trade and, you know, I want kids to follow their curiosity and, and teachers to be able to help kids develop science. You know, so much of lower elementary is reading, 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 math, 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 reading, yeah. reading, reading, reading. So you can answer math questions and like, I can't even believe they're talking about standardized testing kids this uh, spring. How yeah, my unfair. My daughter, is <laughs> yeah, my daughter's in kindergarten and they're already like ramping up for standard testing. I'm like, oh, <laughs> but yeah. I, like teachers I, need more pressure on that. Anyway, I, I won't know. go there. Uh, <laughs> my yeah, listeners want to know about the regenerative you know gardening and how can they grow those giant cabbages like they have yeah. in alaska and absolutely. and things like that so 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 absolutely so what what i focus on and this is where i love the science part of it so i i am a science geek i i because i'm fascinated by nature and i do actually believe everything has an explanation everything i i personally believe that and we just don't understand it all. And we, we never will in my lifetime, but I love to explore and start to understand how things work because a lot of people, until they see the facts and figures in front of them, they, they're not believers. It, you can see if you're a gardener, the miracles that happen in your garden, but some people wanna know why. And I've just always, even as a kid, I would ask, I probably drove everyone crazy. Well, why is it like that? And why does that happen? And and so I like to really understand what's going on in the background. And so, you know, I look at plants and I look at the microbiome, the soil microbiome, which is what regenerative farming is all about. You know, bacteria has been around for 3.5 billion years. Plants have been around for 500 million years. Humans, what, five, six million. So we're way, way the young ones on the planet. And we know through the soil microbiome activities that there's a complete incredible symbiotic relationship for bacteria and plants that have been going on for at least 500 million years. And it's funny because, you know, you started the human genome project, which started mapping out the, the human um, DNA and essentially the holobiome, because what they found out with that project is, wow, almost 150 fold of the DNA that we associate with the human body is not human. And so they're like, we got to really start exploring this even outside of the body. So they started the Earth Microbiome Project, which I find completely fascinating. And what they said in that project is, we understand about one times 10 to the minus 22nd percent of the total DNA on Earth. So that's 22 zeros after the point one 
of understanding of what is actually going on with the organisms of this earth, which I think is mind blowing that we essentially know nothing. Um, but it doesn't surprise me. And it's something that I think we do need to understand more because a lot of our practices- I think we know everything. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of our practices with farming, we're decimating these organisms under our feet. And, you know, I'll ask people, because I think it's a really fascinating question is, you know, what's the most abundant animal on earth? And everyone's thinking of a, ma a mammal, like it's got to be a mammalian thing. And they're like, is it, or is it a bird? And it's really nematodes and they outnumber us 60 billion to one. And most of them are in the soil and we know very little about them. So there's all these fascinating, you know, microorganisms underneath the soil. We're just starting to understand them. And I think it is important to start to understand them because we're decimating, we're literally causing a lot of them to become extinct before we even fully understand the effects that they have, not only on the soil and the environment, but our human bodies. So we know now that plants use their microbiome around them to actually respond to abiotic and biotic stresses. So essentially their soil microbiome, their rises from microbiome is their immune system. It's similar to the gut microbiome of a human being. And when you're damaging the genetic diversity of that, it's basically you got to look at these holobiomes, which are all the different microbiomes that make up a plant. And then same thing goes along with humans. You got to look at all of those together and say, what is the collective DNA and RNA of that entity? And you got to look at it holistically because it draws on that genetic diversity to cope with stress. And we've never looked at a plant that way before and looked at its dependency on its soil microbiome, microbiome and the genetic diversity of it. And so the more we decimate that genetic diversity, we're actually impacting negatively the immune system of the plant. Just like when we impact our gut microbiome negatively, we're impacting our immune system as a human. And so it's really important if you look at it that way, that we take care of our soil, which is why I'm a big advocate of regenerative farming, because if we regenerate the soil, there's a lot of positive things. You're helping the plants cope with stress with, and I won't get into it because it's a whole other discussion with epigenetics, which literally the soil microbiome of the plant can change the way the plant expresses its DNA. And that's mind blowing to most people. It can literally change the way it expresses its DNA in really impactful ways. So again, if we take away that diversity that it can draw on to cope with stress and actually change the way it expresses its DNA, we're limiting its ability to survive. So that's one thing that is really important to me with um, regenerative farming. The other part is the environmental aspect. If we look at it, we look heavily at organic matter, which is like, you know, anyone, that focuses on organic gardening over time they see they're building up like this sponge it's it's absorbing water and making it obtainable to the plant over time and every one percent of soil organic matter we increase we can save about 170,000 gallons of water per acre so my farm down the street is 40 acres it's a pretty um, diverse regenerative farm that we do row crop production and every acre at that much water savings is huge and we've increased the soil organic matter on that farm by about six percent in the last three years which is really good like that's a that's a pretty good run rate but also we know that the the soil has lost over the, in the earth we've lost about two-thirds of our carbon has become atmospheric and the biggest sponge or store that we could pull that back in is the soil which is why farming, they're now saying, is the lowest cost, most effective way that we could start reversing climate change. So if we do regenerative farming, if we focus on building up our organic matter, we're retaining more water and using less fresh water, a huge share of our fresh water in the U.S., which I consider a non-renewable resource. Once it's gone, it's gone. Um, so we save massive amounts of water. We save huge amounts of erosion. Regenerative farms produce about 700 times less erosion. So we keep most of our soil on the farm. So we don't have all this, you know, high nitrogen uh, soil going into our rivers and eventually creating dead spaces in the ocean. So there's so many different benefits to it, but essentially, and, and at the same time, it's sequestering carbon back into the soil where it belongs. Um, 
so okay how do we do that so we focus on a few principles i read phone. my mind yeah <laughs> that's it so there's really simple things and i love this because when i talk to gardeners it can all be applied regardless of what size garden you have because i do these same practices i have raised beds at my house and i just love garden like if if my hands are not in the soil at least a few times a week i'm it, it like makes me sad <laughs> so i love to touch the soil it's just it's very magical for me um but one of the things we do is we keep the ground covered year round and a lot of home gardeners don't do this and it's really important that you do because you have to think of it like your skin your skin is very sensitive to wind and being dry and uv light and things like that so you usually want to protect it and soil is actually just as delicate as your flora on your skin and so you got to really treat your soil not like it's dirt but that it's this living creature and and with all these living entities and so that's really important. We keep it covered with either living um, cover crops, which is probably the best possible thing. And there's natural ones that you can grow in your raised beds or in your garden that just naturally terminate in winter in most regions. So it's not a lot of extra work, but you have this great organic matter that starts to lay down and it protects your soil over winter and, and um, from from the sunlight and everything. Um, and we do that year round. So we either have living, cover crops or mulches as we call them, or we have decaying mulches like wood chips and leaves and things like that. So we try to never have the actual soil exposed um, for more than like a few hours or, or at max a day when we're prepping a row. So that's really important for us. It keeps down the erosion, it keeps in moisture, it allows us to again not dry out the soil and it minimizes the amount of aeration because you do want some aeration in your soil, but not too much. And that's then the second component is the non-tillage. So we don't till our soil. Once we build out a bed, we try to never really disrupt that bed again. We just kind of layer on top with more organic matter. Um, so that's really important. And composting, we have a fairly, um, and it's taken us three years to get a really in a really good rhythm with our composting. So we do windrow composting. We do Johnson Sioux bioreactor composting, but we treat that more like an inoculant. And we do, um, which is a static aeration method. And then we do vermicomposting with our, with our worms. And we do it actually at a pretty large scale, but those are also all things that you can do in your home garden. And I think composting is one of the most important things to do to, to increase that, gen bring back that genetic diversity. Because again, if you look at your plant, and you start to look at your soil as the plant's immune system, it becomes much more effective at fighting off pests, fighting off different fungal diseases. If you have healthy plants, it's really starting with your soil. So that's a huge belief that we have. Um, so those are some of our practices that are really core to regenerating the soil. And it's all about building up that soil organic matter and increasing the genetic diversity. So it has this bigger pool. So the plants have a bigger pool. And if you look at most conventional farming, we till it like crazy, which most soil microbiomes, most of the microbes do not like being disrupted. And then we use a lot of chemicals, which are designed specifically to kill bacteria and different organisms, fun fungus, <clears throat> you know, tons of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. We actually on our farm pretty much only use essential oils. Even we don't even use very many OMRI approved chemicals because we just feel that they can impact the soil in the long run. So we really try to minimize and we use some things like peppermint oil and garlic oil in limited amounts. Um, but we really try to never spray. We use a little bit of diatomaceous earth sometimes as well. Um, but we, we do as much of our pest control and our fungal control and things like that with so having our soil be healthy and balanced. And that's what we feel is really key. Okay, so I'm going to mention to listeners, if you want to know how to do that Johnson Sioux composting and some other composting, our favorite educator, Patty Armbruster, does have a $37 replay of the class she taught on how to do that last July that they loved, Eileen, and we had a few people online, and you can still buy that class. So if you want to learn the Johnson Sioux composting, and she talks about two others, she does sell the replay of that class for $37. Uh, listeners, if you want to get that, let me know. Um, 
a lot of these things we've been talking about, what I am going to pick your brain about are some of these, like, I invested in uh, lentils and farro to kind of grow as some cover crops here. I'm in Northwest Montana, if you didn't know, mm -hmm. but um, so we're zone 4B because a lot of people, like people are struggling with that cover crop in the backyard garden. A lot of what you have said today has been like so key. It's come up on my show. People have been talking about this. The no-till thing seems to be, you know, we listen like Jesse Frost. I don't know if you know his show, the no-till market farmer podcast that's been taking off. They just launched, launched the no-till farmer. Um, Charles Dowding, he just sent me his book, the no-till. Uh, he's over in England. It's like a it's like a, a college level course that's amazing i am just finally starting to understand like to me it's like well if nematodes are so small and these things are like microorganisms you have to look through with a with a microscope like why do they care if i stick my broad fork in there and but now i'm starting to understand with the rain and the sponge and i love the way you described it as your skin protecting that water layer and then mary reynolds came on and talked about how backyard gardeners actually use more chemicals than these big ag people which i didn't research but it um to you know verify but it does you know i've like walk into home depot i'm just like who is buying this stuff? Like, don't people know? Yeah. I can't even walk down that aisle I know. without feeling like the my skin crawl from all the chemicals and the smell yeah. is so toxic. And so many people say, but like, what, what are some good, um, and, and I'm having like kind of issues with my husband because he doesn't listen to my podcast. He doesn't really understand the no-till thing like we bought a tractor two years ago he's rototilled his garden always you know he's the last two years he's turned it with the broad fork last year what did he do he covered the part um so he has what i call like a mini farm and he covered the part where he's going to plant like green beans and peppers and tomatoes with tarps that can't go until after frost. And I'm trying to encourage him to grow these lentils and grow this farro, which is kind of like a rice, like a green cover crop there that I don't care whether we get lentils or not, instead of putting that tarp down this year. So then, you know, the other stuff that goes right in the ground, fine. But like, I'm mostly concerned with the stuff where the weeds usually grow like he usually yeah. ends up with all these weeds because he can't plant that till june so yeah. what are some good cover crops that you can grow in a backyard garden yeah so Long story that's short a, yeah no that's a great <laughs> question because it's it is really a delicate balance and i tell people as they transition it's it's interesting that you say that about um the the chemicals because i think it's just this constant mentality you know people love to garden, but it's, it's also challenging and there are pests. And especially as you're trying to be organic, you have to go through a cycle. You have to rebuild that soil microbiome. You have to basically rebuild the immune system of your garden. And it takes, that's why organic certification usually takes about three years. Cause it does take about three years to start even seeing the balancing act that starts to happen over time. And before you start to see the really strong plants and very few pests, you first see a, a steep increase of them. So a lot of gardeners get frustrated. They're like, well, I'll just go buy this yes. organic spray. And it's dangerous. Yes, and they it's, ask me all the time, but, but what do yeah. I spray? And the so, other one I get is what do I put on my organic lawn? Yeah. Well, and, but, but what do I go to the store and buy to put on my organic lawn? Yeah. How do I get rid of these dandelions? Yeah. And it's tricky because, um, it's, it's like, I see this happening with the plant-based movement right now, which I, I always kind of cringe, you know, there's more and more and more plant-based products, which is great for a sustainability standpoint, but a lot of them are new, just the new junk food. And I'm like, we can't have these yes. absolute like perspectives on things. Well, it's plants, so it's got to be healthy. Well, no, actually these, all these things are added and it's not any different than a cheeseburger or whatever. 
And so we just got to be careful because organic is like that as well. It's, I'm not saying it's probably still better, but if you look at the approved organic chemicals, it blows my mind. There's a, still a lot of really nasty chemicals in there. So people have to really think about it and read what are the, like, I don't like hardly any broad spectrum, even organic sprays, because I know that they're going to impact my soil microbiome and a lot of my native pollinator species as well. I mean, our insects above ground are down 80% biomass in the last 30 years. That's scary. Like that's, um, you know, I, I heard somebody call it in insectopolis or whatever, <laughs> um, because they're like, this is really devastating. It's if you look at how the food cycle works and the, the, the food chain, the insects are almost gone. And what we see in our farm yes, and our yes. gardens and probably your listeners is what we're seeing is a disproportion. If you look at the trends, a disproportionate increase in invasive species and a massive decline of our native species. So there's a few things I recommend for people to do in their home garden or even large scale is I recommend they always plant a few native perennial plants and it does a lot of different things. And this is on top of the cover crops, but let me start with the perennials. Perfect. So a few native perennial flowers. So things like echinacea, which if you're into herbal medicine is a win-win, but it's beautiful. It's low maintenance. It's you, it really doesn't have any pest issues, but it creates overwintering habitats for your healthy insects. It creates um, pretty long uh, ranges of nectar flow for your, your good pollinators. It's just got a lot of good things. And perennial plants keep the root mass in the ground continuously, which is a big benefit because you can have this biodiversity start to grow and you're never disrupting it. So like even in my raised beds, I anchor the corners with perennial plants for one, it looks beautiful, but also um, I know that it's helping create some stability in the soil. I know it's helping generate a really healthy environment under the soil. I know it's helping the pollinators above the soil. So that's one thing I do. And those are low, pick low maintenance ones. Like I do um, things like Black Eyed Susans and Echinacea, or I mainly do Echinacea and Yarrow together. I do some Black Eyed Susans, but I don't know um, the exact species I use here that's native to this area, but um, echinacea and yarrow and mosquitoes grow great hate yarrow. So yeah, a lot of things hate yarrow. And yeah, same with echinacea and yarrow are two very astringent things. So very few insects like are going to flock to them and they're beautiful together. The yarrow and both of them, the, the biggest problem is over time you thin them, but it's really easy to just give them to friends and, or if you're expanding your garden, you can spread them out. Like it's great to just pot them up. And even if you put them literally in your driveway and say, you know, free echinacea, um, or if you're into herbal medicine, both of those are really powerful herbs and you can do some great stuff with them. So I, I plant those even all, they're all over our farm. We do um, hedgerows like every 10 to 15 rows. And we have quite a few that are just pure rotating echinacea and yarrow. And I mean, the bumblebees and the native wasps and different things that flock to those rows. It's just incredible. Um, so that's one thing I do. And then the cover crops we do both on our farm and even what I do in my garden, I keep very simple ones because if you, if you get sophisticated, like the really complicated ones to manage, it can also be quite, quite challenging. And so I don't use the ones that require a mechanical termination just because it's extra, it, they're very sensitive to when you terminate them and it's a lot of extra work. So we do ones that winter terminate mainly. And this year, for example, in our garlic, we used oats and peas combination. That's probably my favorite because it winter terminates in a lot of locations and it can create a really thick mass. Those two work really well together to create a really dense um, uh, organic matter above ground. And then as soon as we get a lot of rain or snow and cold weather in winter, it compacts it down and it creates this beautiful flat mulch. So our garlic, and then what we do with the garlic is once that terminates in winter, which is like the last month or so here in New Jersey, we cover it with huge piles of leaves. And then that leaf layer also starts to flatten down. So it almost is the equivalent of a plastic mulch. I try to never use plastic. I'm not a fan. It's just my thing. And I, I don't, um, you know, try to 
say I'm it's bad for anyone. Now people are talking about getting rid of the tarps after. Yeah, yeah. was like, get these tarps and use these billboard tarps. Yeah. And tarps and are great. Like now absolutely. these so, guys are saying, get rid of the tarps. Don't yeah, the well, tarps. because there's the plastic nanoparticles that happen. There's just, it's, it's difficult because you do need to try to make it easy and not too labor intensive. But I find that leaf mulch. And what's incredible in New Jersey to me is we have it so backwards. Right? Everyone puts all their leaves in a little baggie and they put it out on the curbside. And I was like, why are you not putting that under your forest trees? Like, you're crazy. But everyone wants it off their lawns, which are what would make their lawns beautiful and green and they wouldn't have to spray chemicals on it. Um, but anyway, that's a whole nother thing. But we benefit from that because there's these massive amounts of leaves that everyone wants to get rid of. And so we actually use those in our compost and we use them to cover our rows. And so the garlic will cover with like six inches and anyone that doesn't grow garlic in your home garden, if you have the space for it, you should absolutely, it's probably the lowest maintenance crop you'll ever grow. So I love garlic. It's a, it's a long-term crop. It's not great if you have small raised beds because it takes up a lot of room and it's a, it's a long crop. But if you have a little section that you're not really using, you can use this method, cover crop it, let it terminate over winter, cover it with leaves. And you literally will not have to weed that section until basically you harvest your garlic and you're done. And then you can go right into the next cover crop round. Um, or you can even plant some late fall crops like cabbage and stuff in there. And because alliums, most insects don't like, you don't have a lot of insects pressure in that plot that you were growing the garlic in. So, so those, that's my favorite combination is the oats and a, uh, field peas and then covering it with leaves once that terminates. And it's just, it creates almost like the same effect of a plastic layer because the, the leaves pack down so tight. But when you pull that up, there's so many worms and thriving organisms in the soil. It, it accelerates your organic matter and the regenerative aspects of it so fast. And then, like I said, you have no weed pressure, so you don't have to like put down tarps or spray anything. Cause that's, that's the tough thing with no-till also is I think it's an incredible practice. It's, it's helping with the tillage, but a lot of farms you've used huge amounts of glyphosate. And so I think we got to find ways, how do we do it without terminating with glyphosate? Because I will not use that on my farm. So it's, it's just this delicate balance. So I like ones that winter terminate. You have to look at your zone and make sure it's going to winter terminate. For New Jersey, it's not a problem for us. And then um, we do do some, we're, we're starting to actually, and I actually saw on the No-Till Farmer podcast that there's a few other farms doing this, which I think is awesome. They're creating simple, um, small scale uh, crimp and rollers so they can terminate also like rye and things like that also in season. So, and then another thing we use um, if you're doing row crops is we grow white clover between our rows. It does require some mowing. So it has a bit of maintenance but it holds in moisture and it allows us to have a living mulch also between our rows. So like I said, everything's covered for our farm, including the rows. So they all rows either have clover in between or they have wood mulch. Um, and that makes sure we are not losing a lot of our water into the rows. And it makes sure that we're also building up the organic matter between rows as well. So the only thing with clover is I don't ever put it in the beds because it, it is hard to get rid of once it's it's in the bed. So we keep it cleared from the growing beds and we only do it in between and we just keep mowing it so it stays controlled. Um, so that's another cover crop that we use and it's a legume. So it's also um, helping with your nitrogen fixation and things like that, which is why the lentils are great. You want to look at what you're going to grow after that. And if it's a, a nitrogen rich plant, um, or sorry, a, a nitrogen consumption plant, like a lot of the um, brassicas are, it's great if you grew field peas or lentils or something in that um, cover cropped area, because you've already got a really nice store of nitrogen there that's readily available for the plants. So um, I love legumes and oats because I find them the lowest maintenance, easiest cover crops, especially for beginners. Because if you do a rye and you don't terminate it at the right time and you don't have a crimper, it can actually be really challenging to get rid of it. So you just got to be careful. I think it's really important people do that, um, but they do it in a controlled way. And then I think the other thing I do in my home garden and we do it in the farm is we try to put as many transplants in the ground as possible that are already semi-mature. It helps us with pest management because like if you, if you live in the Northern States, there's a lot of flea beetles 
um, for brassicas and they just riddle the, you know, it's almost impossible without um, doing row covers to start seedlings in the ground. So we do a lot of transplants in a greenhouse. Um, we start those at a time, our, our outdoor greenhouse is not heated or anything like that, but you can still start brassicas much earlier and you can get them a good size and then get them in the ground. And we do a lot of intercropping. Um, so in a way, those are also living mulches, but they're a, they're a crop as well. So you can use them for something. And even things like, um, I grew rat tail radishes, which grow extremely fast. And I don't know if you've ever grown those, but it's actually a really fun crop to grow, but they bush out really fast, really early in the season. And so you can have stuff starting right behind it. And as soon as the rat tail radishes are ready, you can cut it down to the root and you have your next crop that's kind of starting to thrive. And we, so we do um, a lot of radishes in between rows. We'll do a lot of lettuce, things like that, that are super fast crops that you can harvest by the time, like your brassicas are ready to go. So I also like intercropping. I tell people like the, the way I was even taught to garden is clear out your bed, get it like perfectly flat, um, perfectly cleared out that every, you know, surface is dirt and then you start fresh. I actually, that's now the opposite of what I was trained with regenerative farming is keep it covered. Even if it kind of looks a little messy, you know, nature has a tendency to keep everything covered and really tight spacing. So that's how I do my garden now is I try to always think of, okay, I'm gonna harvest that. What is the next thing I can put in there? So I almost always have roots in the ground and I almost always have the surface covered with live plants. I, I use, um, decaying mulches like leaves and bark uh, and wood chips and things like that where I need to where I can't cover it with something living or if it's overwintering but as much as possible I try to keep living plants in the ground because they're helping with that nutrient exchange and building up that soil microbiome so so also intercropping is a way that you're also in a way having living mulches and the cool thing with that is they're also crops that you can consume so it's a win-win and like I said, for us, we do a lot of radishes because they're super fast. Some, some of my crops, I can get two radish crops out of before like my, my bigger cabbages will even come in. So again, you can get a really nice production out of it. And then your cabbage covers up that space and you never really have that ground exposed. And so I do that with um, baby greens and I do that with different uh, like turnips and radishes. And then um, we put big, pretty large transplants in the ground as well. So we don't have to wait for as many things to mature, you know, with, with a lot of surface being um, exposed. So those are, yeah, some of the things that I recommend because even home gardeners, you know, and, and when we harvest, depending on the crop, we usually try to keep the root mass in the ground. So our tomatoes, our peppers, all of that, we just snip it at the root and we allow that root to decompose and we essentially leave its microbiome intact under the surface as much as possible. And then the next crop just gets transplanted right over it. <clears throat> so only root crops completely come out, which obviously, cause that's the part we're gonna consume. Everything else we try to just chop at the base and we leave as much of that to just become another layer of organic matter. Um, and that's something I do in my home garden, exactly the same, all of the things I do at my large scale farm, we also do in my home garden because it's completely applicable. Wow. You are dropping golden seeds like crazy. I'm trying to get the next woman to change her interview so we don't <laughs> have to hang up right away. Um, because I feel like I could like ask you question after question. Like what I want to know, like, wait. Did you say you do pull up the roots from the oats and the field peas, or do you plant right into them? You like no, cut them mostly no. out. Like, how do you get rid of? Or they just no. The winter so, they fall, they die. Yeah, so we put those in. It depends if when you're putting them in. So you can also put them in in spring, but then you have to mow them. So the good thing is those both terminate with mowing as long as you don't let them go to seed. If you let them go to seed, you're going to have oats grow back. <laughs> In, in the middle of your season, which you don't worry. Right. So um, we make sure in fall, um, you know, it's usually, I think 45 days before you're gonna have your first deep frost, you gotta get those in the ground. So we do those to protect over winter. In, once we're in season, we don't have any ground exposed because we pretty much have crops 
always rotating in the garden because we're always planning for as soon as that's coming out, um, the next one's going to go in. So we're trying to always kind of keep, and like I said, things like cabbage, they're slower growing. So I know the cabbage plant's going to be in there for, you know, a hundred days or so. Um, so then I'll, like I said, I'll cover the ground with radishes or something or lettuce until I know that those leaves are going to spread over and cover the whole row. And then as soon as the cabbage is pulled, you know, I might put tomatoes in there. I, it's, we have a very, very um, planned out schedule of what's going to go in there. And then the tomatoes are going to be in there pretty much the whole season. And by the time the tomatoes come out, which is like I said, we just snip them at the base. I then cover crop that and, and prep it for next year. So, but again, that, that row may have gotten seven different rounds of produce coming out of it. So it can be highly productive. That's what makes me crazy. When people say we could never feed the world with organic farming. I was like, that's actually nonsense. I get about 20 times the yield on my farm and it's really healthy, um, in comparison to a conventional farm. And so if people look at it that way, and they actually start exploring this intercropping for food production crops as well, it can be really powerful because you're, you're doing all the things to keep the ground covered, but at the same time, you're getting extra yield and extra crops out of your rows and it's actually benefiting your soil. So um, I try not to overdo the root crops because you're pulling those out. You are disrupting the soil a little bit, but we're very careful. We don't mechanically remove any of it. And so I'll usually at max do two in a row, but like I said, the crops right, right next door to it are going to be pretty much completely left alone. And then we leave, um, we leave the base, even of our cabbage. I know some people even intentionally, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever done this, but you can actually snip the base of your cabbage and get like up to five more small heads of your cabbage. We cover it with, uh, um, sorry, uh, wood chips. So we don't get that added growth, but we do leave all of the, the roots in the row. And sometimes they grow up a little bit and we just snip them off. But if you really want to just grow more cabbage heads, I don't know if you've ever tried that, but usually the, it'll keep growing. If you just snip the main head off at the base and you leave the root in, you can get these little mini um, cabbage heads, which is kind of fun. But I don't do that at our main farm. We, we keep snipping them because like I said, we'll put tomatoes or something else in instead. Um, but we leave the root base of almost every single crop in the ground. And that, like I said, allows you to continue to build that organic matter and that sponge. We look at organic matter like a sponge, it's building up your sponge. Um, so, but I do really encourage people to explore intercropping because it's so cool. And I, I think we have, we love to control things as humans and we like this card and that's perfect. And I, I'm, I like that too. Like I, I like things that look very organized, but at the same time, um, having a very full garden is actually really important. It's, it's really good. You don't want to have it too much because then you can have fungal diseases and things like that. So you don't want everything the same height, but you can play with tomatoes and have, like I said, lettuce right up next to it. And if you could get like two crops of lettuce in before your tomatoes completely bush out, and you could do cabbage and you could have radishes growing while your cabbage is getting bigger. So like I plan my garden by the like horizontal height of everything to make sure it's not going to shadow the other plants, but I plan pretty much every inch of soil so that it's eventually going to be covered. So I look at, okay, I'm going to grow heads of cabbage that are going to be about 18 inches wide. So I'm going to first put in, um, you know, Bacchus radishes in there and they're say a 32 day crop and by the time and I'm maybe putting in five inch um, tall seed starts so I already have maybe 45 days in in a tray um, in my greenhouse and I'm putting them in at five inches and they're probably going to head out by the time that Bacchus crop is gone and so I will only plant in one radish rotation and I know that then the foliage of the cabbage is going to be big enough that it's going to cover it so that's kind of I, I do all my planning on, it's only an Excel, but I do it on these time horizons and I try to factor in all those different components. And if you just start one section of your garden that way, it, it starts to click. It really gets in a rhythm. It sounds really complicated, but it's not. It's, it becomes second nature after your first year of doing it. The first year you might have some gaps in there, but it's still going to be much more productive than when you don't. And as long as you pick the right crops that go together, like 
um, like I said, cabbages, radishes, that they're not going to compete for the sunlight. Um, they're at different kind of horizontal levels that are, sorry, vertical levels kind of, um, they're not going to compete with each other and they're going to be done. The crop that's just filling the ground and keeping it covered is going to be done by the time the other ones mature. Again, you're keeping the ground covered, you're getting extra production, you're keeping roots in the ground and everything's happy and you're building up that organic matter. So that's what we do in season. And then, like I said, at the end of the season, because we know we're not going to grow as much stuff over winter, that's where we heavily use the cover crops. Uh, well, I can't get a hold of her, so we're going to have to go, I think. Let me just quickly see. Um, like, I want to get to the root of things and ask you, like, do you have a favorite? I'm still, like, stuck on, like, what do you do with the peas and the and the oats? Like, do you plant right into them? Like, do you tuck a little hole and say, here's where yeah. my cabbage yep. is going to go? Like... I also want to ask you about the tomatoes. Like if I so cut they, the tomato off, like, and then I'm going to plant a different tomato there. Do I tuck it in in between? Like my husband always pulls the tomato roots out, but I have heard other people say, don't, you know, snip it off, leave that root wide. But then, because yep. we put our yep. tomatoes in deep beds. So my husband always like, but I am like, I do have a plan to put the lettuce and the arugula in that tomato bed this year. Like it is becoming second nature. And I did yeah. have somebody ask me, but they're like, Jackie, because I, I, I like sorted our seeds by date they go in the ground. I see lots of people sort their seed by vegetable or brassica yeah. or flower seeds. And I was like, well, I sort my seeds by, and they were like, oh, wow. And, um, but yeah. we might have to get up, but quickly tell people how to connect okay with you. well i can see if this woman's gonna email me back so we don't have to but i don't think she got it quickly tell listeners how to connect with you okay um so you can see a little bit about our um food company it's uh nutritionforlongevity.com and we do a lot of um, blog posts in there, some of them about just nutrition and balanced nutrition. We do a lot of recipes from the longevity regions of the world. So the zones where people live the longest, healthiest lives, which by the way, all do regenerative farming. So we know that that's heavily connected. Um, and just even some of the crops that we grow, we grow some really fun, unique crops, which I, I know it's fun as a home gardener to try kind of unique things that aren't as common. So we'll post recipes for those. We'll post kind of those crops. We in season do a lot of stuff about our farm. Um, we do farm events on our farm education events. We didn't this last year because of COVID, but also people, because we also do aquaponics on our farm. We do outdoor regenerative farming. Indoor, we do aquaponics. Um, and and we have some really interesting um, crops that we grow that method as well. So people just like to see how the farm operates. So we try to do more videos and blogs and vlogs and stuff around that. So that's probably the best place to, to find us. We're on all the social media platforms as well. And then podcasts, um, you know, like this. And Join Patty Armbruster and I for Grow Live on YouTube Live Saturday mornings coming to you in 2021. We'll be answering your questions. We'll be um, laughing and sharing information that you want to know because they're going to be answers to your questions on YouTube Live Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. Montana Standard Time, and 8 a.m. Pacific. Send us your questions. You can submit them at the organicgardenerpodcast.com forward slash patty. You can email me at orgpodcast at gmail.com. You can send them to mikescreengarden at gmail.com. Ask Patty Live. Grow Live with Jackie and Patty. We'll be answering your questions. What do you need to know to grow healthy food in your garden? Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.